Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We're learning more about the latest deadly school shooting. We've gotten the body, the police body cam video. We're going to show that to you. And we're going to try to have a different conversation about guns with a longtime gun enthusiast about what he thinks the solution could be. Plus, another legal defeat for Donald Trump and a big win for special counsel Jack Smith, a federal judge ruling today that former Vice President Mike Pence must testify to a grand jury about what he, what the then president told him leading up to January 6th. We're currently reviewing, but look, I, let me be clear. I, uh, I, I have nothing to hide. Well, obviously this would be historic. A former vice president forced to give what could be damaging testimony against the president he served. What will it mean for the investigation? And students protesting their commencement speaker, parents complaining about what their children are taught, why are we suddenly so uncomfortable with being uncomfortable? We'll talk about that. But let's begin with the Nashville shooting. I want to bring in my panel. We have Dan Harris, host of the mental health podcast, 10% Happier. Coleman Hughes of the Conversations with Coleman podcast. We have Jennifer Rogers, former assistant U.S. attorney of the Southern District of New York and the Los Angeles Times, L.A. Granderson. So here's what we have learned today. Let me bring everybody up to speed. Police say the 28-year-old who killed three children and three adults at a school in Nashville bought seven guns legally and hid them at home. The shooter was also reportedly under a doctor's care for, quote, an emotional disorder. The shooter messaged a former classmate minutes before the attack saying, quote, something bad is about to happen. Some people say the problem here is not guns, it's mental health. So what's the solution? We're going to talk about all of that with our panel. But first, I want to bring in firearm safety advisor and safety expert and gun enthusiast, Steve Wolf. Steve, great to see you. As always, and I'm sorry that it's always that I always call upon you during these horrible tragedies. But I do like to talk to you as somebody who for so many decades has been a gun enthusiast, taught me the safety of guns on one of my shoots. So I always like um, relying on you. This shooter, Steve, bought the guns legally. Okay, seven guns which suggests to some people that we need better and more specific laws to keep guns out of the hands of mentally unhinged people. I know you think that new laws would not make a difference. How can that be, Steve? Well, murder is already illegal. Uh, Taking guns into school is already illegal. There's nothing that the Nashville shooter or any other shooter has done that's not already covered by one or more laws. But Steve, hold on. Let me just interrupt you there because they don't have red flag. But they don't have red flag laws in in this state. So wouldn't that have helped? I mean, then the shooter wouldn't have been able to get a gun had there been red flag laws. The shooter would not have been able to get a gun if there had been a red flag law and if people had called in their tips um, as well as, you know, ignoring the fact that people can buy guns other than from gun stores and they can avoid the NICS check entirely. But yes, having the red flag laws, as well as having people make the call 
like they say in New York City, if you see something, say something. Yes. So in other words, new laws would have helped in that in that situation. But one more thing I want to ask you about, Steve, because this is what I don't understand. Why we don't talk more about the point of purchase? Why do we let gun sellers off the hook, I think, rather easily? Can't they be, resp- I mean, in other words, should they be perhaps uh asking a few screening questions to try to determine, you know, who they should be selling they, they lethal actually, weapons to? Allison, they, they do ask a lot of, they ask a lot of questions on the firearms purchase sale, but the problem is that they're asking those questions of a person who might be lying or might be mentally unstable. So this is why you have the NICS check system and the red flag system is that other people can weigh in and then through due process, someone can lose their right to purchase a gun lawfully. So, uh, so explain that to me, very... Steve. So just explain that to me. What kinds of questions are gun people who want to buy guns, what are they asked? They're asked, are you a fugitive from justice? Are you a legal alien? Were you discharged from the military under dishonorable circumstances? Are you an unlawful user of drugs? So a lot of these things are covered. But of course, if uh, if someone has criminal intent or is mentally ill, they're obviously going to lie on this form. And there's only so far that uh, a gun dealer can go. Well, this would be like asking the car dealer, you know, to ask people what their drinking habits are before they're allowed to purchase an automobile. Sort of, except that, look, TSA asks, did you pack your bag yourself? And sometimes they Not say, anymore. are you carrying explosives? I mean, sometimes they do. At some airports, they do, and they're allowed to do that. And sometimes, guess what? They find people who say, actually, no, I didn't. Or, yeah, maybe I did forget to I left something in my bag. Sometimes that happens. But would you what? be, well, let me ask you this, Steve. Would you object to a question of, in addition to all of those that you just laid out, are you depressed? Have you considered hurting yourself in the past 30 days, yourself or anyone else? Would that be, would those be good questions? Those are fine screening questions if people would answer them honestly, but you'll get more honest answers from people who know that person and then call the authorities and let them know that this person's exhibited some unstable behavior or has expressed harm towards others or, uh, or self-harm. Uh, the people in their lives are more likely to give honest answers and to report to the authorities than the individual themselves would do. So, Steve, what in your mind is the solution here? Well, in my mind, the solution is based on the idea that anyone who proposes something that's going to be objected to by the other half of the country isn't going to get legislation passed. So we should really focus on the things that we could all agree on. I believe that we could all agree that we'd like to see less of these insane shootings We'd all, we could all agree that mentally ill people shouldn't have access to firearms. And I think we could all agree that people who own firearms should store them responsibly so they're not accessible to children or mentally ill people. If we start there and add red flag laws, I think these are things that we could all agree on and th- therefore legislation could get passed. But I think if we talk about banning some particular type of gun or magazine capacities or all these other things, we're going to get a lot of friction and there's going to be no forward progress the way we've seen for the last 15 years. Well, I like what you're saying, except that only 19 states have red flag laws. So why isn't that universal? Why nationally haven't we all settled on that? So I think that these should be federally mandated and federally subsidized, because one of the reasons that states often object to legislation is because Washington is telling them what to do, but not telling them how to pay for it. So if, if as a nation we value the idea of a red flag law, then the federal government should mandate it and then they should absorb the costs of implementing it 
as well as maintaining national tip lines so that people who are you know, mentally and emotionally unstable can get the help they need. And I also think it's really sad that so many people are you know, suffering from mental illness in this country, and yet we pay them no attention until they represent a violent threat to someone else. But if they're suffering on their own, nobody gives a crap. Well, I mean, look, obviously we have a mental health crisis for sure, but this person was under a doctor's care. I don't know exactly what that meant, but that's what we've learned today. But Steve Wolf, always great to talk to you. I really appreciate your perspective. Thanks so much for coming on. Allison, thanks so much for having me on tonight. I want to bring in my panel right now. Um, LZ, your thoughts? Yeah, I wanted to ask Steve because I was as soon as he said this remark, I was just like, "What are you talking about?" And that's the mer- the merchant code, which is something that just developed recently within the banking world. <clears throat> when you go back and you look at the Patriot Act, one of the things that it requires banks to do is to keep track of your purchases. And if you make any purchases that are sort of unusual, or if you're doing these sort of money laundering to terrorist organizations, you would be flagged. That is a federal law that's already in place. The gun industry, for some reason, I'm not going to accuse them of doing it purposefully, but for some reason, they were able to avoid having a gun merchant code for years after 9-11. Meaning if somebody were to buy seven guns within the space of a, a month, it should be flagged. Exactly. And that's already through the Patriot Act. So what Steve is talking about is unnecessary because there's already something in place that's already been passed through Congress and signed into law that if it was actually utilized... Um, would have flagged those seven purchases because they would have been unusual. But the gun industry has worked really hard not to have a, munch, a gun merchant code. They just got one assigned, and there's several GOP uh, attorney generals who are now trying to fight that with the Biden administration saying this is unconstitutional. Jennifer, you're a lawyer here. Any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, the thing that, that disturbs me about all of this, it's not just that the NRA controls the lawmakers so that they won't pass background checks and other, you know, put in the right merchant code and do all of those things. They also pass legislation that thwarts people from suing gun manufacturers. So the way you would normally see this taken care of in society is that people would sue like crazy, right? They would start killing them in the pocketbook, and then everyone would change their tune. But that can't happen here because they've been so good about giving money to the politicians to get legislation through that basically completely stops all of these Although somehow the Newtown parents found a loophole. They sued Remington. And somehow, I I just need more information on what happened, but somehow they found a loophole, and I know that was seen as unprecedented and a huge success for them. But not everybody has been able to do that. I I think I would need to look into this more, but I think it has to do with the manufacture of where the gun is manufactured. If you sue in a place where there's gun manufacturers or non-gun manufacturers, it's a different standard, and and most states... You know, they're, they're different, yes. different. But both of these are great suggestions. I mean, again, if we're looking for solutions and trying not to have the same circular conversation that we have after every one of these tragedies, you know, I, I try to find solutions. I feel like we're, we're already naming some, but somehow, Coleman, this yeah, eludes Capitol Hill. Yeah, well, I think part of the problem is that Democrats have been misled into thinking an assault weapons ban is going to be the cure-all here. But the, but the truth is, even a handgun can do this kind of damage, right? So the problem is mentally ill people being able to get a gun of any kind, right? It's easier to get a gun than to get a driver's license in some states. And that seems backwards to me, right? You should, there should be mental health checks. There should be uh, character references. And that's the, the path forward, not the assault weapons ban. Dan? I just, you know, I look at this story and I think a little bit about how do we as human beings and consumers of the news survive this continuous parade of horribles 
these continuous parade of murders uh, that are playing out with the most vulnerable people in our society. And, you know, I think there's a temptation to lapse back into rage or fear or helplessness or apathy. But I would recommend, and I'm going to get a little meditative on you all now, that we, we lapse back instead into compassion. Because I think that is the attitude, the attitude of feeling people's feelings of empathy and then having the desire to help on top of it. That's the attitude from which we can achieve solutions. Compassion for the shooter? Compassion for everybody. I wouldn't start with the shooter because that's very hard, but definitely compassion for the people who are suffering right now. Yes, and I think that we do. I mean, it's very, very hard to think about the parents and to think about that moment where their kids, they're not going to be reunited with their kids. And we see it time and again, and it's so painful to go there that I think that a lot of us just can't even imagine, uh, try, try to avoid imagining. Well, here's what I do when I find myself scrolling by these stories and I feel the temptation to numb out. Because it's there. Because it's just, I'm a parent. It's, it's hard to take this in. I was one of the first reporters on the ground in Newtown. So I've covered a lot of these shootings. I try to stop, look at the picture, and in my head, silently send the wish for whoever's suffering to be a at least have a, an alleviation or a reduction in that suffering. And that is a training that science shows is successful. You can train your brain toward compassion instead of overwhelm and fear and rage. And how do you want to act? Because we should take action. This isn't about thoughts and prayers. But do you want your action to come out of a place of rage or fear or resignation or out of a desire to help? That's beautiful. Thank you all very much for all those perspectives. Stick around, everyone. When we come back, have you noticed that people seem to be really uncomfortable with being uncomfortable? Whether the argument is about DEI in the workplace or who speaks at a school commencement on a college campus or what movie plays in a classroom, we don't know how to tolerate discomfort. We're going to discuss that next. That was Disney's 1998 film about the life of civil rights icon Ruby Bridges. She was just six years old and in first grade when she made her way through that hateful crowd. The movie has been shown in Florida classrooms for years, but is now under review after one Florida parent filed a complaint saying that the movie could teach children that white people hate black people. This trend is happening from elementary schools to college campuses to the workplace. When did we all get so uncomfortable with being uncomfortable? And can we legislate and protest protest away discomfort. I'm back now with my panel. Okay, so Coleman, this is interesting. I think this is an interesting case. Let's start with elementary schools before mm-hmm. we get to college campuses and the workplace. Mm-hmm. So that's Ruby Bridges. That, sh- that movie had been shown in these classrooms in Florida for years. And what's interesting to me is that the school had sent out permission slips two weeks earlier to the parents because it's a PG movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it could be a little heavy for some second graders, frankly. Mm-hmm. So they sent permission slips and each parent had to sign it and say whether or not their kid could watch it. Mm. Two parents didn't sign it. 60 did. Two didn't. And that's their prerogative. That's fine. What, where I think the problem comes in is that one of the people who, signed the, who didn't sign the permission slip, who didn't want her child to see it because she feared that it could teach that white people hate black people, then doesn't want the school to show it. Right. So 
How are we to address that? So look, she has every right to pull her kid out of class. Uh, her reason doesn't make sense given American history because that is a historically accurate portrayal of the way white Southerners at that time viewed black people. But is people, it right for second graders? Here's the, here's the thing about that. If you, uh, if you drop the F-bomb in, in a movie, that's PG-13. Yet a movie that drops the N-word twice is somehow PG. Are we saying the F-word is not as bad as the N-word? That's a bit of a strange uh, double standard there. And, and that, was, that was actually the other parent's complaint. The other parent said, movie is fine. It should just be showed to eighth graders mm-hmm. because this, you know, this has profanity in it and it has threats of violence. I think that's a reasonable take. Yeah. Dan, your thoughts? Uh, I have no comments on the specifics of this, but I do want to say a word for open-mindedness generally, because I think what we're seeing here is a little bit of, uh, across the board, in many of the cases that we're going to discuss tonight, uh, as you said, a refusal or a lack of desire to be uncomfortable. And the studies show that people with an open mind are more resistant to depression and anxiety, have higher life satisfaction. And there was one study of American presidents that showed the single biggest determinant of a successful presidency is a president who's open to new ideas. Mm-hmm. So I think if you just use that as a framework for moving through the world, you are likely to be more successful. As the great Ian Bremmer, the uh, international relations expert, said on Twitter, if you're only following people on this site who you agree with, you're doing it wrong. Yes. Thank you for all of that, because we're certainly <laughs> in that place. That's the place that we've come to. So do you want to talk about Ruby Bridgers or do you want to talk, move on to college campus? Well, listen, how old was she? So the student, oh, so she was six, okay? Yes. So Ruby so, herself was six and in so first grade, and this is about second graders. So if your student, if your child is six years old, they can find out about Ruby Bridges. Why? Because she experienced it. She lived it. She survived it. So stop being so damn fragile and allow yourself to find out what the history actually was because there was a little black girl that actually had experienced the history in real time, whereas your children get to do in the safety of the classroom and educate themselves without having grown-ups yell at them and spit at them and call them horrific names. That's my feelings on it. Okay, let's talk about what's going on on college campuses. So right now at JM, George Mason University, uh, the commencement speaker, speaker has been announced, and it's Governor Glenn Youngkin, who is the governor of that state. <laughs> Many governors of Virginia have been invited to be the commencement speaker at George Mason. But there are 6,700 signatures from students who don't want him to come because they don't like what he stands for. Now, part of me says college kids are going to protest. That's their job. But he is their governor. Maybe they could protest at the polls or they could protest in a different way and not say they don't want to hear what he stands for. You know, it's interesting because on the one hand, you feel like it's their commencement speaker. You want to have some voice in that, maybe. I mean, if you don't want it, sure. send the note to the administration and they'll make a decision. If he comes, sit and listen. You can hold a sign or whatever. If you protest too loudly, then you're in the situation of the Stanford Law incident with Judge Kyle Duncan of the Fifth Circuit, where the the, the uh, students went really got very loud and chaotic uh, protesting him. And, you know, listen, this is not a First Amendment issue. These are private universities. No one has a right to go in there and say what they want to say. The protesters don't have a First Amendment right to be loud and chaotic and disruptive. Um, it's more an issue about college and law school being about being open to ideas and having a, a marketplace of ideas, a place where you can listen to people from the other side, ask pointed questions if you want, disagree if you want, hold up a sign. But, you know, let's, let's at least hear some voices that are different from our own. But, but sometimes, though, I will say that the discomfort isn't because you don't want to be uncomfortable. It's because you're tired of being silent. 
So I think it's important that we don't have this conversation with a broad brush and just say everyone's uncomfortable. Sometimes the uprising is because we've been signing for too long and we're not going to do it anymore. So it's not uncomfortable in terms of I don't feel good about myself. It's I'm uncomfortable because I no longer want this untruth to go untouched. And in fact, what the students say, Colin, is uh, the reason that they're protesting him is selecting a speaker that has passed anti-trans legislation, promoted the abolishment of racial equity curriculum and restricted the ability of literature in public schools is an intentional target towards historically marginalized communities. Look, I think we've been seeing this kind of thing on campuses for the past 10 years. And, uh, you know, the problem is, you know, it used to be normal for a Democrat to be married to a Republican. You wouldn't even comment on it. Now you see people's Tinder bios. They won't even go on a first date with someone on the other side. Uh, you know, they're, they're having interactions with strangers on social media, but they're not really hanging out with people as much as we used to in real life. And therefore, the younger generation has not, to the same extent, acquired the skills and habits necessary to really have a pointed but respectful disagreement and tell someone why they are wrong, right? We, we've these skills are atrophying by underuse, and that's why you see people just expressing raw anger without the ability or inclination to go up there and ask him the pointed questions if you have disagreements. And then to the workplace example, and this is in Montana, they have basically um, passed uh, legislation that for um, DEI training, any DEI training for any public employees is prohibited that would make them feel, quote, guilt, anguish, or other forms of psychological distress. Where can I go to get my distress <laughs> legislated away? Why doesn't my state have this? Why don't you just tell the truth and just say, you don't want to be uncomfortable finding out the real history about how this country started. You, well, know, you don't want to feel bad. You don't want to feel bad. And, and, and I get it. No one wants to feel bad. But you know when I feel the worst? When I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Wouldn't it be better for our electorate if it was informed before we actually went to the polls instead of just being guided by emotions that aren't based upon anything other than anecdotal fears? People are are responding to a real issue, though, right? I don't think the law is the right way to, to, to deal with this. But there's a trend of people going into their workplaces and being told by people like bestselling author Robin DiAngelo that, um, you know, white people shouldn't cry around black people because we're so fragile or all of these insane hyper-progressive notions about race that make race, uh, you know, subsume everything in a person's identity. And they, they want some way to fight back against that without being the next person that's canceled online for being a racist. So they reach for these laws that I think are ineffective, hard to define, and end up being too broad. But there's a real cultural pro- problem of, like, these DEI, fake DEI experts going into the workplace and telling you that you're a racist based on nothing. And what do you think the answer is? The answer is for us to have really open and honest conversations that are not based in bullying, but are based in some of the, maybe the practices that someone like a Dan Harris might uh, promote, and to have, to be able to have these honest conversations in a tone that is not simply demarcating typical people as good versus evil. But can't you see, though, how if you're too respectful of the good versus evil that you end up sanitizing what actually happened? I mean, sometimes you just have to sit there and take it. Because there was a lot of ugliness here that happened. There's a lot of infrastructure that was built around the ugliness. And trying to avoid people being upset or feeling guilty about the ugliness doesn't help us get past the ugliness. And more importantly, doesn't help us resolve the issues that that ugliness caused and is still being prevalent today. If we're talking about history, I agree with you. If we're talking about a DEI seminar at my you know, corporate America job, I don't know that that's the venue for 
you know, my racial identity and and its meaning throughout all of American history to be sort of cast on. But what if that company's never had a person of color in a leadership position? You think that's an accident? Or what if that company no, I don't has think never had accident. a female in position I, of leadership? You, know, you think that's an accident? Or how does it help? To history? How does it help to to blame all of the male? I didn't or say the blame. I said inform. Okay, but what a lot of these DEI, I don't doubt you would do a good job, but no, a, lot of these, a lot of these <laughs> DEI experts, they're not informing. They are, you know, it's like R- Richard Carranza in New York City is like, white supremacy culture is about worship of the written word and all of this insane and objectivity is a white thing. All of this insane things that the radical DEI people have been pushing and people really reject this, but they're afraid to talk about it. But I think you're fast. You're both fascinating on something that I think is really interesting, which is there does feel to be a blame component. And that's what people are trying to um, resist. Whereas some things happen organically when you learn and sometimes you have to force the issue. And so we just have not figured out that balance yet. Um, But thank you all very much for that conversation. Meanwhile, former Vice President Mike Pence ordered to testify to a grand jury about his conversations with then-President Trump leading up to January 6th. What's Mike Pence's next move? A federal judge ordering former Vice President Mike Pence to testify about conversations he had with President Trump in the lead up to the insurrection. I'm back with Dan Coleman, Jennifer and LZ. Okay, um, let's listen to what Mike Pence said on cable news today about um, what he's going to do next. Well, we're we're evaluating uh, the court's decision, how they sorted that out and what other testimony might be required. Uh, we're, we're currently reviewing. But look, I, let me be clear. I, uh, I, I have nothing to hide. Uh, I have a constitution to uphold. I, I upheld the constitution on January 6th. We're currently speaking to our attorneys uh, about uh, the proper way forward. And as I said, we'll have a decision in the coming days. So, Jennifer, what are his options now? So his options are to go ahead and go in and testify, as he's been ordered to do. We don't know the exact parameters of what the judge told him he could hold back, but he certainly can go in and testify about a lot of it, or or he can appeal. So it was Trump's uh, lawsuit that was the executive privilege one. His piece is the speech and debate clause issue, which just covers his actions as president of the Senate when he was overseeing. So he doesn't have to tell the January 6th grand jury anything about January 6th. If it relates to his role as presiding over the Senate in the certification, I think so. But it's not entirely clear. And what likely is actually going to happen here, Allison, when it's all said and done and he's actually sitting in the grand jury, he may refuse to answer a question and they literally will get Judge Boesberg on the phone to sort through whether that's a legitimate invocation or not. I mean, it it can go question by question. Is that right? So he why can't he just say I plead the fifth? Well, he could plead the fifth if he thinks he has criminal exposure himself. But that both suggests that he thinks he has criminal exposure, and um, they might question it. They might say, you don't, so it's not a proper invocation of the Fifth, or we're giving you immunity, so you have to testify. LZ, what do you think that they want out of him, and what will this be um, an effective exercise? I have never seen a person blow so many uncontested layups before in his life as much as Mike Pence. Meaning? Meaning he has been positioned so many times that it's just like it's easy. Just do this and you will be celebrated. Just do this and you will be viewed in a higher light. And he never does it because there's a piece of him that can't let go either of the Trump base or Trump himself. I don't know why he's doing the humming and hawing of, well, we got to check and see. And there was 
Dude, tell the truth. If you have nothing to hide, then just tell the truth. You've wrote the book. You've gone on tour. You're making these comments about Trump. You've made these comments, comments about Secretary Buttigieg trying to get attention. You're trying to run for president. Here is your freaking moment. And you're up there still, oh, I don't know. We got to go to see. I got to protect the Constitution. But you know, I don't know. It's like, dude, make up your mind. Gentlemen. So you're saying he's bad at basketball. He's <laughs> so many blown layups. Where's <laughs> <laughs> March Madness? So I figured that out there. Fair enough. But Jennifer, I asked you this in the break. What, what more can he add? We know from other people who have testified, I believe, that there was a pressure campaign on him to, to overturn the results of the election. So if he's on, on the stand, what, what does he add beyond just saying, yeah, it's true? Well, there's at least one conversation we know about that was between the two of them that no one else heard both sides of. Correct. So that conversation we haven't heard about. The special counsel hasn't heard about. And listen, you're entitled to the actual content. I mean, it's not enough to just say we know that Mike Pence was pressured by former President Trump. We need to know what was said. The jury's entitled to hear what was said. I mean, you can call him as a witness and subpoena him to court and testify. He has no legitimate basis to refuse to testify in that situation. Coleman, thoughts? I have, I have another question for the, for the legal expert. Like, what different kind of threats could he have made in that phone call which would have actual implications? Like, one level of threat may have one implication and a lesser level of threat. Uh, like, what rides on the contents of that private phone call? Well, it depends on what they're trying to prove. So if they ultimately charge the former president with a crime, we'll see what they charge. If they charge him with... Um, trying to overturn the election, those sorts of offenses, you need to know that he intended to do that and he knowingly did that. So if they talked about, listen, I know I didn't have the votes, I know I lost, but you are the one who can help me turn this around. You're the one who can make me succeed in stealing this election, Mike Pence. That's pretty good knowledge and intent evidence. But you know how Trump speaks. It's, uh, I know you're going to do the right thing, Mike. Does that rise to the level of proving something? So you elicit that testimony and then you have folks explain how he speaks to the jury and you have people come in and say this is how he speaks and this is what he means when he says that in all of my experience with him you can make that happen you can definitely explain how people talk and what it means and mike pence is maybe someone who could do that for the jury but first you have to get the actual content of what was said and that's why they're trying to get mike pence. of the three investigations that are going on right now january 6th georgia stormy which one poses the most uh, danger and threat to the former president the one that you didn't mention, which is the classified government documents investigation. And that's also, counsel. but that's wrapped up in January 6th, right? Those no, it's a connected. separate investigation also being done by Jack Smith, but completely separate charges, separate facts, separate everything. That to me is, is the one. And the fact that classified documents were found at the current president's house doesn't, doesn't reduce the threat there? So there's been a separate special counsel appointed to take a look at that one, but it doesn't seem to me with the number of documents that were found, the intentionality that's been shown, the fact that he cooperated from the get-go, that that is likely to be charged, although I guess we'll see. Trump's in a whole different boat. You know, I will have to yeah. disagree with you. Quickly. I think the Stormy Daniels one is more dangerous because she calls him tiny. <laughs> Oh, God. That hits right to the core. I, I know you just were excited <laughs> to get that in there. I'm so just telling you. Also, Trump is bad at basketball. To, yeah, that's right. Um, great questions, guys. Thank you. That was excellent. Thanks so much. All right. His prison sentence was vacated after two decades behind bars for a murder conviction. Now, a Maryland court has reinstated Adnan Syed's conviction. We'll tell you why next.
A Maryland appellate court reinstating the murder conviction of Adnan Syed, the subject of a wildly popular serial podcast. This is just the latest turn in a tragic saga dating back more than 20 years. In 1999, Syed's 18-year-old ex-girlfriend, Heyman Lee, was found strangled and buried in a Baltimore park. Authorities arrested then-17-year-old Syed for the murder, but he maintained his innocence. The following year, a jury found Syed guilty and sentenced him to life in prison. Fourteen years later, the serial podcast brought widespread attention to the case. The case was like a Shakespearean mashup. Young lovers from different worlds thwarting their families, secret assignations, jealousy, suspicion, and honor besmirched. The villain, not a Moor exactly, but a Muslim all the same and a final act of murderous revenge. Two years later, in 2016, a judge granted Syed a new trial. Then, last September, after serving more than 20 years in prison, a Baltimore judge vacated Syed's conviction. But today, six months after Syed walked free, a Maryland appellate court reinstated his murder conviction, saying that the lower court violated the rights of victim Heyman Lee's brother to attend a key hearing in person. My panel is back. Huh? Jennifer, (laughs) why does Adnan Syed have to pay the price for a prosecutor's technical mistake or the court's technical mistake? Why is he suddenly guilty of murder again? So he probably is not. Um, A lot of states have laws that are very protective of victims' families' rights to be present for proceedings, to be notified about what's going on in the case. Maryland does as well. The brother should have been notified sooner so that he could get to the hearing. What the appellate court has said is that they need to do the hearing again. Um, The judge will be the same. The facts are the same. Presumably the judge will reach the same result. But the victim's brother can now be there. So likely it's just a redo with the same result. Okay, so not another trial just the very same hearing with the same judge who decided to vacate the guilty conviction. That's right. And Syed could appeal. I mean, he could appeal this ruling to the higher court saying we don't need to redo it. And then the highest court in Maryland could consider that issue. Um, Dan, I turn to you. Talk about mindfulness and how you live with 20 years of your life lost. Yes. Being convicted of something that now they've decided you were not guilty of. When I've interviewed people who were wrongly convicted and spent decades in prison, the, the, the refrain I often hear from these folks is, if you get into anger mode, you'll never get out. Mm-hmm. And so you really have to be incredibly dil- diligent and vigilant about your mind states. And I have not interviewed Anand Syed, but I would imagine or I hope for his sake that he's able to stay out of the anger. It seems like it because when he was released, he seemed to be generous of spirit, gracious, happy, you know, not railing against the system. And I think the podcast revisited him, I think, a couple once he was in prison. And he was still sort of more sanguine, I always thought, than I would have been able to be. But that it's just an incredible story. And the fact that he's still going through this. It's just heartbreaking. I'm going to assume, um, because it tends to happen a lot, um, that faith is helping to anchor him emotionally and spiritually as well. Um, I, I just think that it's just so heartbreaking that he's being re-traumatized in a lot of ways because even though it's not a new trial, it's still 
everything is being talked about again. He's being reminded again, the 20 years, the ex-girlfriend, whatever happened to him in prison during those 20 years that obviously may have changed him and his perspective about life in a lot of ways. It's heartbreaking to think because of this mistake, he is going to have to go through this again, in addition to the victim's family. Yes, and of course, we do have to talk about the victim, Heyman Lee, because I applaud the court for wanting her family to be there and for victims' rights. That is a huge step forward for victims who have often felt sort of shunted aside Mm -hmm. in these cases. But they made a mistake by not having her brother here. And I guess, I hope that he's satisfied now by being physically present at this hearing. Sure, and it looks like this may be more of a formality than something that will actually tip the case in the other way. But I think one thing to note here is, is the power of podcasts to actually influence real life, right? Podcasts have been viewed in the past as sort of the ugly stepsister of television and, 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 and cable news, frankly. But look, look at the power that true crime podcasts, which are enormously popular, especially among women, as it turns out, um, to actually influence real life events. I mean... Coleman does have a podcast, so it's oh, so I may be slightly biased. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so does LZ, and so do I. So do you. Everyone in the same way on the podcast. Wow. Well, okay. Well, Jennifer and I are feeling very left out. We're going to start one now. Yes, we are. Oh, we're left out. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for that. All right. Meanwhile, do you need more sleep? If so, we're about to share the secrets to napping and what the bedroom should really be used for. Hey. That's next. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's say you did not get the recommended seven to eight hours of sleep and you're starting to feel a little groggy. Will a nap help? Our friends at the New York Times asked an expert that question, and the answer is yes. It will up your energy, but it will not negate the other health downsides of not sleeping enough. Oh, and do not take a three-hour long nap, Dan. Try and limit your naps to 20 to 30 minutes. Okay, so let's bring in my panel. How many of you get eight hours of sleep? Sometimes, mostly. Elsie, how much? Um, between six and seven. That's not enough. Okay, how, <laughs> many of you, how many of you are nappers? Yeah. Okay, so Dan, what are the secrets to nap? You were a morning show anchor like yes. I was a morning yes. show anchor. Yes. It is really arduous work. There's a reason I don't do it anymore. Me too. Yeah. Me too. It was really, really physically demanding. So what are your secrets to napping and sleep? Well, napping is great. I mean, but but there are some people, like if you have insomnia, as I actually sometimes do, for some people, as I understand it, napping is perhaps something you should be careful about because it can interrupt that evening's sleep. So you do want to be careful. You want to listen to your body. Some people can really get a lot of a nap. Some people, it's trickier. Uh, other tips? You want other tips? Yeah, I want for to tips for, sleep? for sleeping, yeah. Yeah, so I've done a bunch of interviews on my podcast about, uh, about see, I have a podcast, Coleman, I don't know. <laughs> uh, about how to get a good night's sleep. And some of the good tips are keep the room cold and dark. Use your bedroom just for sleeping or sex, nothing else. Really? So, I and I know my, you you work out of your I bedroom. I have a global so bedquarters, yes. as I call it. Yes, so apparently like that's a bed, bad idea. I do tons of work. You it doesn't want your, stop my sleeping. You, you want your brain... Okay, so it works for you. Works but for me. most of us, you want your brain to know this as the place to sleep, not as the place to be awake and do lots of other stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm so eating, really I'm working. Yeah, But go on, okay, move on. Uh, what else? Uh, stop using your devices an hour or two before bedtime. Uh, uh, have a consistent bedtime. 
And there's some disagreement on this because you can have a consistent bedtime or a consistent wake up time. Some experts say one is more important than the other, but consistency seems to be important. Try to get some sunlight early in the day, which is good for your body clock. Exercise is really helpful, especially uh, cardio early in the day. And uh, here's my other big tip, having spent quite a bit of time obsessing about sleep, because everybody says it's the apex predator of healthy habits. Obsessing about sleep is not great because it can stop you from sleeping. So I think you should take sleep seriously, but not too seriously. Okay, I don't do any of those things that you just said, and I'm a world-class sleeper. Um, but, but Elsie, can you take any pointers from that and change and get more sleep? Um, maybe not using devices. Yes. You know, I, I like to read when I'm in bed. Um, typically, I use my device, a Kindle, to do that. But I will bring a book with me from time to time. I know the screen, the light from the screen can create this activity that makes it harder to sleep. So I'm trying to get better about reading in bed and actually having the paper in my hand. But I still use my device. But as far as, like, the other things, I used to be the guy who would say, I sleep when I'm dead, right? Like, I'm a hustler, I'm a grinder, I'm playing Kidja Lamar, and I'm just like, I'm just going to keep working, I'm going to keep working, keep working. And then, like, I turned 40, and I was like, what the hell am I doing? Sleep when you're dead? No, sleep when you're sleepy. (laughs) (laughs) Good. That's a very good start. That's a good transition. All right, thank you all very much. We'll be right back. Police in Nashville releasing dramatic body cam video of officers arriving at the scene, searching for and confronting, then killing the shooter. This was after the shooter opened fire at a private Christian elementary school, killing three children and three adults. Police say they don't know the motive, but they also say the attack was, quote, calculated and planned. I want to bring in CNN's Tom Foreman. He's at the magic wall for us to explain what we'll see in this body cam video, which many of you, we want to warn you, may find disturbing. Also, we're joined by Ed Davis, the former Boston police commissioner and CNN law enforcement analyst Michael Fanone, a former D.C. Metropolitan Police officer. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. Tom, let me start with you. You've been covering school shootings since before Columbine. So tell us what you see in this video. What you see most of all is what looks like a textbook handling of things here in that they start off from the very beginning, calm and focused and purposeful in everything they do. We see uh, Officer Rex Engelbert show up here. He's getting information from people. He has his weapon ready. He's approaching the building. And as he calls out to other officers to come up and join him and get ready, it is clear he's not going to wait around about 20 seconds from the time he reaches the doors until he goes in. Listen to what he does here. Let's go. I need three. One more. Let's go. Just incredible. I mean, uh, Michael, I just want to bring you in. When you hear that, just to me, it's so um, viscerally powerful to hear that they know that this is a life and death situation and they're just going to they're just, you know, storming in. Yeah, I mean, I think these officers demonstrated what the American police officer is capable of uh, when he or she is given the right equipment, the right training, uh, and has the appropriate mindset. It's clear that uh, these officers, um, they acted methodically and deliberately 
in everything they did from the time they arrived all the way up until they uh, identified and neutralized the threat. And so bravely also, Commissioner, do you agree that this is a textbook uh, example of what should be done? I do. And courage, I think, is the one thing that we haven't heard until you just mentioned it, Allison. I, I, it's just incredible the amount of uh, fortitude it takes to, to literally charge a position with uh, military-style uh, weapons involved. Uh, th- these officers are walking into hell, and uh, they're doing it calmly and methodically and exactly by their training. So uh, I can't say enough about how uh, well this was executed um, they communicated well. They uh, moved from uh, place to place, clearing rooms, as is the uh, the plan. And then when they heard gunfire, they moved immediately to the sound of gunfire and took immediate action. It saved lives. And uh, th- this is textbook. So let's hear that next part of it, Tom. Let's talk. Let's show us the part where they're going methodically um, classroom to classroom. If you look at them when they first get inside here and they're going through the bottom floor, that is the description exactly right there. They're methodical. They're calm. You would think that they were performing some kind of a drill because they show none of that unease when they're encountering exactly what Ed made reference to there. They're a mortal threat in this building, but they're going about it quickly and smoothly. Listen now. With me. Hold the door. Next. Michael, I don't think I've ever seen that before. I've always heard that they go classroom to classroom and have to clear each classroom, but I've never seen them say, here's a bathroom, look in the bathroom, clear, and then move on to the next one. Just seeing it, again, is very powerful, and I can't help but think about how they didn't do that in Uvalde. Yeah, I mean, it's the uh, complete opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, But these officers did what they were trained to do. The training is uh, to immediately enter the structure, uh, identify, locate the threat, and neutralize the threat. And you can see that uh, prior to them hearing gunshots, they're going in room to room trying to find uh, the suspect. Once they hear gunshots, they begin bypassing rooms Uh, responding directly to the threat uh, and then neutralizing that threat. Um, Again, that is the training uh, and that is what's expected of police officers uh, here in America. Commissioner, again, as I've said, I find this so satisfying, I guess, to see because they're doing, you know, God's work. I mean, they're trying to save these Children, and it's such a great example of police work, and I think that all Americans should see what our local police and obviously our FBI, et cetera, have to do every single day. But at the same time, does it make you at all anxious that we're showing this? Does, that, does this give away kind of the handbook? Does it give away clues, or do you think it's a deterrent? I think it's a deterrent. I think that uh, this type of uh, professional response is something that uh, needs to be seen. Uh, Police were initially hesitant to have body cameras and there've been terrible things shown on police body cameras, but this is an example of getting the word out as to exactly what police officers are facing when they get a call like this. And, and, And I think that over the course of a year, the police in the United States do a much 
better and impressive job. Uh, if we can document that on video and get that out to the community, people will see exactly what they're getting from their, from their police department. So I, I think this is a, a positive step. And kudos to the chief for getting this out so quickly. You know, a lot of places, uh, lawyers get involved in it and they want to hide everything. And this is one of these things that we really need to be transparent about to regain the trust of the American people. This goes a long way towards that happening. Mm hmm. Um, okay, Tom, so this next part is is arguably even the more intense, the most intense part. So show us what we're about to see. Absolutely. And what you see here is the lesson of Columbine High School. I was outside Columbine when what was happening inside was happening. After Columbine, the lesson was don't sit around, move to the gunfire, take action. Listen to what happens here as they charge up the stairs and you hear gunfire and there is no hesitation. They're moving directly toward the shooter. Mike, obviously not all of us are built of that stock. Not all of us can run towards the danger. You are built like that. What is that moment like? Uh, I mean, I've said many times, uh, especially with regard to my own experiences, uh, you never rise to the occasion, so to speak. You fall back on your training. Uh, it's apparent that these officers were well-trained, but that they also possessed what you called courage, uh, the commissioner called bravery, uh, I would refer to as the warrior's mindset. Um, they knew that they had a job to do, and they completed that task. And to touch on what you were saying with the commissioner earlier, uh, I couldn't agree more. It is uh, more than just appropriate. It's what's needed right now. People need to understand what police officers do on a daily basis uh, so that we can sleep safely and securely in our beds each night. This is part of the drop. It's brutal uh, and it's gruesome at times, but people need to understand what officers do uh, and they need to be commended uh, when they perform exceptionally like these officers. Absolutely. Um, Commissioner, how much training goes into what we just saw? The orchestration of that, the choreography, how much did they train for that moment? The training goes on every year, year after year. And I had a policy of bringing officers in who were involved in combat situations and interviewing each one of them in the two police departments where I was the uh, police chief. And, uh, and, and every one of them said to me at some point, the threat happened, and then we just responded the way we were trained to, and it saved lives. And and so the training, whether it's on the range or whether it's tactical training uh, of of room clearing, uh, the techniques that you saw here, communicating, shoot and move, um, going to the the sound of the gunfire and neutralizing the the threat, those are things that have to be done over and over and over again. So it becomes part of your physical reaction to these terrible threats. You know, the sights, the sounds, the smells of incidents like this don't get translated completely in a video. It's much worse when the adrenaline is pumping. And I, I think that, uh, that that this training is necessary and, and it, you see it happening over and over again. I'm so glad you point that out because obviously they're seeing unthinkable things that we're not 
showing, but that they are forced to have to um, metabolize somehow while they're doing all of this. Tom, go ahead. Your, your final thoughts. Yeah, the last thing I want to point out is when you watch all this video contiguously, from the time they come in the door until the time the shooter is down is about two minutes and 15 seconds. That's a pretty amazing response time in situations like this because we've seen many where it hasn't been anywhere near that. Yeah, we applaud them. Um, such an amazing bit of video that they've shared with us. Uh, Michael, Commissioner Tom, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, a new poll suggests that Americans are backing away from the values that once defined us. Things like patriotism, religion, community involvement, and having children. So what defines us now? A new poll shows Americans are shifting away from values that once defined us. Let's bring in pollster Frank Luntz, awesome comedian, Princeton fellow, Maysoon Zayed, the always interesting Evan Siegfried, our favorite former tennis pro, Patrick McEnroe, and Gideon Litchfield of Wired. Guys, stand by because I want to talk to Frank, pollster, first about what this means. Frank, what do you mean that we're shifting away from our treasured values Well, this is a wake-up call that the anger and frustration, anxiety, every negative connotation you can imagine now exists and is affecting our attitudes towards patriotism, our attitudes towards faith, towards family, towards freedom. And I thought this was impossible. But, but Allison, what what we've been hearing for the last three, four years in our focus groups is, is really intensity. And it's not just anger, it's a lack of civility, it's a lack of decency. We don't focus on communication, we need to focus on comprehension. We need to focus on what we all need to learn rather than what we need to say. I think that that's one of the problems that we have in politics right now. And I blame the Republicans, I blame the Democrats, frankly, I blame the media as well. I blame all of us, I'll take responsibility for it. We have lost the ability to listen, we've lost the ability to learn. And what this poll shows is that we are not facing a critical point or a crisis point. It is upon us right now. And unless we get our act together, I'm cleaning up my language for CNN. Unless we get our act together, we are we are headed down a path that we may not be able to recover from politically, economically, socially, culturally. As a country, we are so divided. Please, those people watching us right now, listen up. Our country's changing and not in in a good way. I'm afraid it's not our viewers because they're all so wonderful. But anyway, um, I I, I just want to dive into it a little bit more. So this is a Wall Street Journal poll, Frank, and we put up the one that in 1998, patriotism and religion were two values that were very important to the respondents, 70% for patriotism, now it's 38%. 62% for religion, now it's 39%. Then uh, values that were very important to people in 1998, having children was at 59%, now it's 30%. Community involvement, 47%, down to 27%. And so here's one that has gone in the opposite direction, Frank. Values that are very important to you. Money. In 1998, 31% said that was very important. Now it's 43%. So what's caused this shift, Frank? Well, it's part of it is the politicians. I do want to do something right here. This doesn't matter if you're unhappy. 
this doesn't matter if your family is broken, if your faith in the future, if your faith in faith doesn't matter. So I wasn't thinking about this until now. This is irrelevant. And we need to stop focusing on this and stop focusing on the things that really matter. I'm teaching right now at Verbum Day. I'm teaching right now at Radley College. And it really, truly matters to these students, the environment that's around them, climate, immigration, fairness, justice. Doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. The problem is too many of their parents and grandparents judge people based on their politics, based on their attitudes towards issues. And we're not paying attention to what really matters, love, respect, decency, civility. And, and Allison, and I, I'm interested in your, what your panel says about this, I don't see any candidate right now who's speaking up for this. In fact, I see partisanship, I see uh, ideological warfare, I see people still trying to get the advantage over each other. Uh, there's an app right now, it's called Facts, and it doesn't engage in this kind of communication. It focuses on the truth. And I say to everyone on the panel, if we don't reassert our passionate, relentless pursuit of the truth, then we're not gonna make it as a country, we're not gonna make it as a society. And, I'll, I, and I don't wanna repeat myself, but we see these things in our focus groups every time. Mm that people just light into each other. Hmm. And we gotta stop, we gotta stop right now. Um, Frank, stand by if you would. Let me bring in the panel now. So Patrick, Hmm. it's disheartening. But I mean, I think that, I don't know, I I think that maybe it's not as bleak as the Wall Street Journal is, is, um, you know, spelling it out as, but here's one that is bleak, tolerance for others. Mm -hmm. In 2019, they said 80%. Is that possible in 2019? That's how we felt. And now, in just a few short years later, 58%. Your thoughts? Well, first of all, I'm glad Frank didn't tear up 100. It me was too. just a single. So that yeah, was the good part. That made me part. feel better. I agree. But I mean, he's he spot on with so many of his comments. But you know, I think back to when we were all similar age, where we were kids, you know, we used to watch certain, sh- you know, the one show that we watch. We do things together. And I think the splintered nature of not only the politicians, which is certainly a huge part of this, but what's available to, I mean, think of our kids now and all the options they have. I mean, there's so many different things they can do. There's so many different shows. So I feel like people are trying to just put you in your little box. You know, the box has gotten smaller for all these different things, whether it's politics, whether it's television, entertainment. And so it just, it's, it's kind of like becoming just what it is. It's, it's hard to get away from it because everybody's like these focus groups. You know, Frank talks about all this both. He does focus groups on certain groups of people. And this is what it's sort of become. But I think I'm not as, uh, as pessimistic as this. I still think there's a lot of good thing. And I think the biggest thing that Frank said is to listen, listen to other people. So I'm ready to listen now. And, yes. And people need to stop listening with their mouths which is what people do, Gideon. Yes, they listen with their mouths. But I, so speaking of listening with one's mouth, I want to, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to second guess Frank Luntz, the master, the master of public opinion. But I've seen opinion polls misused a lot in many different countries. And it's very easy to tell a story with a poll by picking certain questions. And these questions tell a pretty dispiriting story, to be sure. But I want to point out, you know, first of all, I think you could ask questions about other things. What do people, how important is friendship to people? Has that gone up? I'd be curious to know. I don't know the answer. How important is caring for the environment to people? 
that might show a shift in a different direction. Again, I don't know the answer, but when you pick questions like this that feel almost designed to show the country falling apart and also to show certain values which are more associated with the right than the left in, in many of these cases declining, then should you be surprised? I also want to say one more thing. Frank said money is not important. When you look at that poll, before the question about which of these values are less important to people or more important, there is a whole series of questions on the poll about economics, mm -hmm. about how optimistic people feel about the future. And they are a litany of concern, of anxiety. People are saying they're not confident that they will be better off. They're not confident their finances are improving. I think 21% said that they feel their kids will be better off than they are. 78% said they won't be. That, and that's been part of the narrative of economic insecurity that this country has been in for a long time. So and so I think it's not so, money is, so of course money is important. It is important yeah. to say it, to tear up the whole yeah. great move, Frank, <laughs> burn the flag, do what you yeah. want. But I am not entirely convinced. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have Frank weigh in on this in a second. But uh, let me go to Mason. Well, Mason, so your thoughts. So my thoughts are you can't have religion and you can't have kids without money. You can have faith, faith is free. Organized religion is extremely expensive and having children is extremely expensive. So the idea that we can be close to these things and ignore money, I hope he tapes that dollar back and sends it to me because it's expensive being disabled in America. It's expensive having kids. I tried to adopt. It was so expensive. All I could afford was a cat. That's it. Beyonce, that's all I have. So I think that we need to look at this and first go, People like me aren't polled. I'm closer to religion than ever. It's Ramadan. I'm hungry. I remember. I know what's happening. But also, I think that these things getting away from them isn't necessarily bad. And I think community has completely been redefined. Community is now online. Mm -hmm. So like when I'm hanging out with my community, it's not Cliffside Park, New Jersey, which I love. Of and course I you do, Jersey will, girl. Because Jersey rules. <laughs> but my community is, you know, disabled people worldwide, Palestinians worldwide, people who wear way too much makeup for a news show worldwide. <laughs> and so is community disappearing or is it defined differently? Great point. Well, to get to Gideon's point on economics, when it, if we go back to the 90s, the dollar went a lot longer, uh, further for everybody. And now more and more Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, and cost of living is skyrocketing. And that's a huge problem. And at the same time, we've seen both political and cultural shifts, where in culture, the TV's dad in the 90s was Bob Saget. Now it's Logan Roy. Now... In, uh, and we also have the Kardashians. What are they chasing after? Money. So those are the values we're imparting to many in our generations, the younger millennials and Gen Z. And then on the political side, we've seen since the 1990s, the left and the right elect further and further more extreme bomb throwers who refuse to compromise and think it's the dirtiest word. Last month, we had Marjorie Taylor Greene calling to have a great national divorce. And, you know, but, I mean, Joe Biden is hardly a, a left wing. No, he's not. Thrower. When uh, I think enough of the country was so sick and tired of Donald Trump and just literally tired of the drama that they voted for Joe Biden. And at the same time tonight, we had a Fox News host come out and say that trans people are the natural enemy of Christianity and tried to paint the brush that because of the shooter in Nashville was being trans, that all trans people are responsible. And that is violent and dangerous rhetoric that does divide us. It's wrong because the shooter in, uh, in uh, Sandy Hook had, was on the autism spectrum. Not, that doesn't mean everybody with autism is all of a sudden a threat. It's wrong. It divides us. But also those online communities you talk about, 
There are plenty of online communities where they get together and they echo chamber these Absolutely. horrible, yeah. divisive ideas. Yeah. Um, Frank, can you tape that dollar bill together and send it to Mason? <laughs> Please. Thank you. <laughs> I do not want to tape it together, but I want to emphasize one point that one of your, your panelists made, which is that so many parents now think their kids are going to have a worse quality of life. That's been a problem now for about 10 years, but it's never been this bad. We've never had a situation when so many people think that the next generation is going to have it worse than this generation. That is a major definition of the American dream. That is a major component in the anxiety that people have right now, the, the genuine fear. And unless we address that, I will tell you that people were making more money over the past couple of years, but everything in life was costing them even more. And they started to come to realize that money itself doesn't buy happiness. It doesn't buy success. That in the end, a happy family and a, a community that works together and, and acts together, however you define it, if you feel part of a community and you're satisfied with your family, then all these other issues don't matter as much. But if you're making more money and you have less of that soul, less of that ethos about America, that's what matters most. So yeah, this is a wake up call to everyone that things are still getting worse in this country. And God forbid if we have the same 2024 that we had in 2020. Our politicians need to listen, not just listen to each other, but listen to the American people, learn from the American people, and then lead. In the end, that's what matters. And love is the answer. Let's just finish <laughs> on that. That's, I think we can Absolutely. all agree. Right. And dollar bills. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, Frank, thank you very much. Great to see you. Thank you. All right, the acting head of the Federal Aviation Administration has an interesting theory on what might be causing that string of near collisions of commercial flights. He links it to the pandemic, but something else also. We'll talk about that next. I like that Mason is cracking you up. That is fantastic. All right, now to this. Close calls on runways putting airplane passengers at risk. Today, the FAA's acting administrator had an interesting explanation. Nolan says, quote, air travel is coming back in a big way since the pandemic, but the long layoff coupled with the increased technical nature of our systems might have caused some professionals to lose some of that muscle memory. On top of that, we're contending with the loss of experience as the pandemic forced many seasoned professionals into retirement. Data from the Bureau of Transportation shows that after dipping at the beginning of covid the pandemic, airline passengers bounced back by mid-2021. But despite the return of passengers, the data shows a different story for airline jobs. Airline employment is still struggling to get back to pre-pandemic levels. My panel is back with me. Maysoon, is the FAA basically throwing pilots under the plane here by saying, like, <laughs> they, they just don't know how to operate the new systems. They've gotten rusty. Their muscle memory has gone. Not only are they throwing pilots under the plane, they are terrifying touring people like me. Like, I don't need their muscle memory gone. I need them to be sharp. And like, everybody's wilding out on planes right now. But also, nobody's talking about the fact that there's no such thing as a scheduled flight anymore. Like, I know I'm supposed to feel bad for the pilots. They're tired. My life is in their hands. But what I really feel bad about is going to Newark Airport and just living there. <laughs> the flight schedules are just suggested. They're not real. And this pandemic excuse, oh, my God, it's what I tell my mom when I don't want to do stuff. Oh, I'm so behind. It's the pandemic. I'm catching up from the pandemic. You're not catching up from the pandemic. You're not going to 
take that from pilots. No, I'm, I'll take anything a pilot wants me to take. I <laughs> sit very quietly on airplanes, and I am not disruptive. That's good. Excellent. Me too, because I'm scared some of the time. Um, so I, I don't like, like Mason, I don't like the idea that our pilots have forgotten how to fly some of these systems. The pandemic excuse now doesn't hold water no. because we've had vaccines for two years, and that has enabled us to get back to pretty much more uh, normal life. But at the same time, let's look at the infrastructure which the acting chief of the FAA kind of hinted at, but did not go there, which is we have an aging infrastructure. We aren't having advanced supercomputers in airport uh, traffic control or in air traffic control and in planes themselves that can coordinate and say, oh, there's another plane there. They actually have to take little tiles and move them around in some... Uh, no. Yes. no. No, 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 no. That's still there. No, come on. It's still <laughs> there. <laughs> it's terrifying. No, that's They're terrifying. They're doing it with Legos? Why that, are we the air traffic that? controllers yeah, they are doing literally battleship? Write, it's literally Battles. a little battleship. No, that was an airplane. They don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But that is, we do need to upgrade the infrastructure that can better deal with stuff in the 21st century. For sure. We heard that. I mean, we definitely learned that after the Southwest meltdown. Well, as as you know, Allison, my homework for this show is exhaustive. Okay, so (laughs) when when I went through some of the numbers on this one, they said it was 20 to 25 percent of the airline employees, pilots, air traffic control people, flight attendants had left during the pandemic. Why haven't they all come back? I'll give you three guesses. The first two don't count. What Frank Luntz was talking about. It's about the money. I'm on a flight a couple of weeks ago when I had to miss the show, which was devastating to and, me, and me and California. And I'm on a flight to Palm Springs, which is only one nonstop flight a day. I we got off the flight, a small plane. People are packed in. The flight attendants say, well, if, could you please leave quickly? Because we're turning around. We're going right back. I said, you guys are going right back to New York. The same crew. And that used to be you take a long cross-country flight. You'd be off for a day or two. You'd get to relax because they come. They turned right around and came back. And this is what they're trying to squeeze everything. The employees, us, talking about the dollars and more flights. And these people got to get their act together and not make it all about the green. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, hearing everything that you're saying, I think these numbers are actually a good thing, a, a, a sign that... Things are going remarkably well. I mean, considering all of the, you know, the losses of jobs, the stresses, the, you know, angry passengers, everything else, um, the fact that we're only seeing this actually relatively small uptick in the number of serious near misses. I mean, we don't want one of those serious near misses to turn into an actual collision, obviously. But if, I was looking at the FAA data, and I think the numbers that they're talking about as seeing this uptick recently is, is the most serious incidents. But if you look at the data on all incidents that, are, that count as incidents... Um, which, you know, amount to a good few dozen a month, um, the numbers have actually slightly declined in really? the last because six months. Really? Because they look months. bad. The ones that we have the, videos the ones of, they, they more look attention bad. So, yeah, of course, and it's true. Like, one bad incident like that, and you've looked. But all I'm saying is I'm very glad that Nolan is, you know, calling attention to this and, and having a summit about it, and I think that's responsible. But I don't think we should all freak out. It's certainly we not good for them. We should freak out. You're missing a plane if they don't miss I don't want to be sitting that. in a plane freaking <laughs> also, out. That's why they have bourbon how, on the plane. Yeah, I mean, that's right. right. But you have to pay. But also, yeah, like, very quickly. Yeah, just really quickly. Why are we not better at this? It's American exceptionalism. A year later, we didn't know everyone was going to want to fly after being trapped in their houses. We should be ahead of this curve. Thank we you. We should not be behind it. And no near misses when I'm flying Please. Agreed with all of that. Thank you very much. Panel, stay with me. When we come back, does ChatGPT have a political bias? And how much of what it gives you is flat out wrong? That's next. 
ChatGPT has only been around for a few months and already both the left and the right are angry with it and calling it biased. We need to examine how this new technology blurs the line between truth and fiction. My panel and I are joined now by Cheryl Cashin, the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Law, Civil Rights and Social Justice at Georgetown Law School. Professor, thanks so much for being here. Tell us about this experiment that you did with ChatGPT involving the history of slavery. Right. So 35 states in the country have adopted or introduced legislation to ban the teaching of race, history about race, right? And so I wanted to, my fear was that students who denied uh, truth and and that kind of creep will probably fall back on the internet. So I just asked ChatGPT a simple question, simple to me. Um, Which of the delegates at the Constitutional Convention Oppose slavery, and ChatGPT um, basically made up an answer. Right? They they said that several delegates, many delegates, spoke out against slavery, um, but they weren't able to abolish it. And in fact, that was so far from the truth. The debate at the convention was really about how much we're going to accommodate slavery. Not one delegate there proposed that it be abolished. And so what ChatGPT did was it mouthed um, something very similar to the things that uh, Ron DeSantis and others have said about the framers, suggesting that they favored freedom for all and that they set the stage for abolition when in fact it took 80 years in a civil war um, before we were able to accomplish that. And so Professor, where is ChatGPT getting its information? So it, it, as I understand it from reading about it in the newspapers, it mines data that's given to it. It looks at thousands and thousands and thousands of patterns, um, words that are out there, and it predicts the kinds of words that the prompt, the person who wrote the prompt would want to hear, right? So I asked who at the founding spoke against slavery. It mouths back to me uh, this fairy tale about the delegates actually wanting abolition, um, but not being able to accomplish it. Uh, And this is this, I think it's pretty dangerous um, because ChatGPT can't tell truth from fiction. It's, it's, It's not intelligent in this sense. It just gathers information and spits out what it thinks frankly, um, I I may want to hear. And Mm -hmm. the thing that's particularly dangerous is because it's written in nice prose and it's written with confidence, it seems as if it knows what it's talking about, right? Right. So the person who reads it might think it's true. I happen to be a scholar and read two books and knew that it didn't know what it was talking about, but it also could be manipulated pretty well to put out untruths. Yeah, Um, this is a, yeah. This is an excellent cautionary tale, this experiment. Uh, Professor, stand by if you would. I want to bring in my panel. So Gideon, maybe humans are better than robots after all. I mean, this is what she's described as she says. She knows better. Most of us don't. And so we can't really rely on ChatGPT. We see it time and again. Well, I want to say one sentence that I want everybody to remember that would really help if people remembered it. ChatGPT is not trained on the truth. It is trained on the internet. The internet is full of stuff 
that people, that some of which is true, some of which is stuff that people want to be true. It contains all of the biases and the anger and all of the stuff that we have, humans have put onto it. Um, and so that's, that's one point. The second point is someone used what I thought was a really good metaphor to understand what a model like ChatGPT is. It's like, you know, when you take an image, a picture of something, and then you compress the image, you make a JPEG, uh, but you keep on compressing it and compressing it, and it gets grainier and grainier and messier and messier and lossier and lossier. ChatGPT is like this incredibly compressed image of the internet. So even whatever information or, it's not even really information that it's taken. What it takes from the internet is sequences of words. And it says, what is the word that is most statistically likely to follow the preceding word? And that's how it creates patterns. And then it takes those patterns and compresses them and, it, uh, and produces this very grainy picture of what is there. So to go and then ask it who was against slavery in the Constitutional Convention, you shouldn't really expect it to produce a good answer. The problem is, of course, as the professor says, a lot of people expect it to. But we really need to understand just how limited it is in being able to translate anything into into anything that might be called reliable. Sounds to me like some political operatives. I mean, it's just you, put the, you get in the information from human beings. They're putting the information in the Internet. I mean, my Twitter feed, let's see, I've got tennis on it. What a surprise. I've got news. I've got music. Like my Instagram feed figures out I like music. I like the Beatles. So that, guess what comes up? The Beatles comes up again. I mean, this is what it is. And so human beings are going to affect what chat GPT is, right, based on exactly what they're putting, they're giving them the information. And I, I understand that they're starting to write all the, they're, they're going to use them in the political world now to just write their media reports and just that's put it out there. Yeah, that's such a bad idea. This is what's happening. That's such a bad idea. The texts and emails that we get already, I spend like half the day trying to unsubscribe. And now they're going to let a robot do it? Like they're already robots. Robots will kill us. I'm not even convinced that Gideon's not one. But, like, <laughs> the idea of introducing this... He's not. He's not. He's real. He's real. She yeah. makes sure too yeah. perfect. Yeah, yeah that's why he yeah, wants you to think, and that's what ChatGPT <laughs> wants. But I want nothing to do with any of that. I'm it, not letting it predict what I'm going to say. I'm not going to play with it. But the idea that politicians would use it to court yeah. us... Well, we'll see, Mason. Nice I mean, madness. I feel like I'm going to ask you back in a year, and we'll see if you can avoid ChatGPT, because it seems so ubiquitous. I mean, I owe you one. We have to get to Penn penmanship okay so we're going to talk about penmanship porn and i'm serious <laughs> when we come back okay let's talk penmanship porn <laughs> penmanship porn is a community on reddit where people can fawn over beautiful examples of penmanship and watch other people's writing i'm back with my panel okay so first let's put up one of our panelists penmanships and let's all judge it and then look at it. Okay, so this is okay. So this is clearly a psychopath um, <laughs> for who's, who's written this. This right here is Evans. Yes, yep. I can. It's totally legible. I can read it. It looks great. Okay, now let's look at the next example. Okay. Let's look at the next example. Okay. Okay, that's pretty. That's pretty. That's nice. pretty, Mason. First of all, you signed it, so Very we've seen clear. that that's yours. I signed okay, it. <laughs> nice. So this is me, and I just want to say this is proof that. I'm better than mediocre white men because <laughs> I have cerebral palsy. Resting position of my hands is like a kangaroo. I still wrote better. Than How you. did you do that? I still did With highly cerebral palsy. How did you? Is it hard to write well, in science? It's it's hard, but the thing is, I knew about penmanship porn. And I wanted my writing to reflect the fact that I vibrate because I thought it would help me do better. Thank you. Evan, you've got eight seconds well, to respond. I, with my penmanship, I was just trying to promote abstinence in <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. But, whew. 
That is so My therapist is going to get a lot <laughs> no of way to follow up on yeah, there really isn't. No way to follow up on <laughs> really this. Yeah, okay, well, one more thing. I just have to show one more thing. Patrick, so, yours is on a cocktail napkin. Well, okay, listen. Now, I mean, what does that tell us? I mean, the hotel room, you can't even okay. get stationary anymore. <laughs> i got to use my napkin. Right? That's all I could get. That's, if that doesn't say penmanship porn, I don't know what does. <laughs> um, thank you all. Okay, get in very quickly. Oh, look at Let's Gideon. Get in. That was Gideon's right there? Yeah, it was clean. Mine was also a cocktail napkin. Yeah. Okay. But yours looks <laughs> oh, wow. nice. Maybe you are a robot, Gideon. Yeah, he's a robot. Um, all right, guys, thank you very much. Great to have you all here tonight. Before we go, tomorrow on CNN This Morning, Republican Senator Mike Rounds joins to talk about today's big banking hearing in the Senate and if there's any possibility of gun reform in the wake of the Nashville shooting. Tune in for CNN This Morning starting at 6 a.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Thanks so much for watching. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.